Against the Odds, AHC's inaugural podcast series featuring the true stories of real-life bands of brothers who exhibited unparalleled bravery, solidarity, and endurance on the battlefield to come out on top in a fight against impossible odds. Reliving battles from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and Iraq, these are the true stories of the harsh realities of war, as told by the veterans who survived to tell. I'm your host, Shane Bowler, and this week we present The Death Ridges of Peleliu. The fierce struggle for survival in the abyss of Peleliu has eroded the veneer of civilization and made savages of us all. Eugene B. Sledge, from his memoirs entitled With the Old Breed at Peleliu and Okinawa. We landed there with 50 in the 2nd platoon. And that afternoon at 5 o'clock the same day, there were only nine of us that were not killed or wounded. It was one of the deadliest battles of the Pacific War. War in the Pacific and on Peleliu was of a primordial nature. The Japanese were a brutal, take no prisoners kind of enemy. They knew going in, the only way to beat them was to descend to that level. They pop both arms out, two grenades and fly off of their armpits and blow both of you up. To be under heavy shell fire out in the open was terror compounded beyond the imagination. And you're losing man after man after man. Who's left? It's the PFC with guts who says, screw it. I'm going forward. An incredible story of courage. I can remember my father talking about how they might wound me, they might kill me, they might disfigure me for life, but I'm not, I am not going to let the Japanese drive me crazy. One of the last great battles of World War II. I can't say enough for them. They're the best fighting bunch in the world as far as I'm concerned. This is their story, Against the Odds, The Death Ridges of Peleliu. In July of 1944, President Roosevelt summons his top commanders to a private meeting in Hawaii to determine the next phase in America's island-hopping campaign against Japan. The debate, often contentious and discordant, is won by General Douglas MacArthur who convinces Roosevelt that the Philippine Islands must be retaken. He has one controversial caveat. Colonel Dick Camp, author of Last Man Standing, the 1st Marine Regiment on Peleliu. General MacArthur was about ready to go into the Philippines. To support his movement into the Philippines, it was thought to be essential that we took Peleliu Island. Peleliu sits just 500 miles east of MacArthur's planned invasion of the Philippines. He fears the Japanese aircraft launched from Peleliu's airfield could menace his approaching invasion. The airfield, MacArthur's main objective, is protected by 10,000 troops of the Japanese 14th Division, battle-hardened by years of fighting in China. The island's horrific defenses are buried deep inside the coral rock, in a nightmarish network of tunnels and cave systems. All of it 
cloaked and hidden under a thick canopy of dense green jungle that prevents any detection by aerial reconnaissance. The oncoming marines have no idea what is waiting for them. In early September 1944, troops relax aboard ships as Operation Stalemate heads towards the island of Peleliu. On board are the elite 1st Marine Division, coming off bitter, draining campaigns at Guadalcanal and Cape Gloucester. A solid core of veterans augments a kid army hardly out of its teens. They will hit the Peleliu beaches on September 15th. On board the ship is General William Rupertus. Major General William Rupertus was a division commander, had indicated at meetings and actually had published a letter saying that while this was going to be a tough campaign, it was going to be a quickie. Three days, four at the most. Among the young Marines is 20-year-old Eugene Sledge. They call him Sledgehammer. His meticulously kept battle diary will in the years to come serve as the voice for every enlisted man in this war, when it is later published as With the Old Breed. Henry Sledge, son of Eugene Sledgehammer Sledge. The Old Breed was another name for the 1st Marine Division. 1st Marine Division had a long and storied history, and he was immensely proud to, to have been assigned to that division. From the diary of Eugene Sledge. The Japanese fought to win. It was a savage, brutal, inhumane, exhausting, and dirty business. Our commanders knew that if we were to win and survive, we must be trained realistically for it whether we liked it or not. The technology that developed the rifle barrel, the machine gun, and high explosive shells has turned war into prolonged and subhuman slaughter. Men must be trained realistically if they are to survive it without breaking, mentally and physically. September 15, 1944, D-Day at Peleliu. Under a massive naval bombardment, three marine regiments head toward the beaches. Ahead, wait 10,000 dug-in Japanese who have sworn to fight to the death. From the diary of Eugene Sledge, I broke out in a cold sweat as the tension mounted with the intensity of the bombardment. My stomach was tied in knots. I had a lump in my throat and swallowed only with difficulty. My knees nearly buckled so I clung weakly to the side of the amphibian tractor. Huge geysers of water rose around the Amtraks ahead of us as they approached the reef. The beach was now marked along its length by a continuous sheet of flame, backed by a thick wall of smoke. It seemed as though a huge volcano had erupted from the sea rather than heading for an island. We were being drawn into the vortex of a flaming abyss. For many, it was to be oblivion. Judge Braswell Dean Jr., Private First Class, Automatic Rifleman at Peleliu. My goal was to follow my fire team leader, Bill Thompson, 
The entire squad of 13 was supposed to stay together. We hit the beach running. He said, follow me. People were getting hit all around us. But they said we had to keep going. We went on up about 30 or 40 more yards in a ditch. We were by ourselves, just two of us. We didn't know what happened to the other 11. The Japanese were on a coral ridge with caves dug out. They came out of those caves. The artillery that we'd shot in there hadn't done anything to them. And they were firing down at us. We landed there with 50 in the second platoon, K-3-1. And that afternoon at five o'clock the same day, there were only nine of us that were not killed or wounded. General Douglas MacArthur, Supreme Commander, Southwest Pacific Area, has tasked the 1st Marine Division with capturing the island of Peleliu and its critical airfield. He believes the island poses an imminent threat to his coming invasion of the Philippines. His force commander speculates the assault will be fierce but brief. He is only half right. The first day, we were ambushed. The death trap behind where I was, it looked like a morgue. Our commander had been killed. Our Masik was dead. Your dead friends lying around. Joe Gatto slept in the same tent I was in, had been shot through the eyes. When you see your buddies that you become friends with lying around dead was maybe the most horrifying part of the battle. But even that, it got worse. Also attempting to land on the fire-swept beach is Captain Hunt and his 228 men of K Company. As their Amtrak closes, they come under merciless gunfire from a terrifying feature of terrain, known simply as the point. Japanese engineers have selected a point of landscape that juts out into the sea as an overlook, bringing the entire 2,500 meters of landing beach white under unbearable defensive fire. From thick concrete bunkers, mortars, machine guns, and high-velocity anti-boat artillery unleash a point-blank massacre on the Marines. As the Amtraks come in, the Japanese open up. At one point, an aerial observer says, my God, there are at least 26 Amtraks burning in the water. 26 Amtraks, there are at least 20 troops on each one of those. Do the math. At 10 a.m., the 235 men of K Company are ordered to take the point. So as they get in there, they take immediate casualties. He loses all his uh, machine guns right off the bat. His lead platoon literally gets shot to pieces. K Company of the 2nd Platoon advances to the point. The second platoon starts going ahead and they get caught in an anti-tank ditch. It looks like cover because they got this fire coming in. 
So they jump in this anti-tank ditch. The Japanese have a machine gun nest that covers the length of the ditch. And so they gun them down. By this time, of the 235 men, he's probably down to about 90. So he's had all those casualties. And a lot of them are your unit leaders, your corporals, your sergeants, your lieutenants. And so who's leading these men ashore? It's the guy with the guts. It's the PFC that says, I'm gonna do it. Here's King Company that is in the attack and they're slowly making progress. But now, Captain Hunt is down to about 30 men. Out of 235 men, he's got 30 or so with him right now. I can't imagine as a unit leader myself, all of a sudden going from 200 men to 30 men with all these casualties. What do you do with casualties? I mean, do you, you leave them? Well, you have to. Walter Doc Davidson. To me, it was a case of survival, uh, mainly survival. Help as many other guys as I could get out of there, that was the main thing. In a place like that where you're under shelling, you couldn't do much for them there. I can't say enough for them. They're the best fighting bunch in the world, as far as I'm concerned. But Peleliu, uh, to me, meant when I survived Peleliu, I was living on borrowed time. At 10.15 a.m. on September 15, 1944, after nearly six hours of nonstop fighting, the K Company has taken the point. They have sustained over 80% casualties. At the top, Captain Hunt counts some 400 enemy dead, a sign on both sides of the high price to be paid for the critical point. But with daylight giving away tonight, Hunt knows the ordeal is just the beginning. The Japanese were a brutal, take-no-prisoners kind of enemy. And I can remember my father saying to me that they knew going in, the only way to beat them was to descend to that level. Captain Hunt knows the Japanese will spare no ferocity in counterattacking to retake their vital position. And now, with darkness falling, there will be little chance of reinforcements. Surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands of enemy soldiers, the exhausted, bleeding band of Marine brothers brace themselves for the fight to come, all 30 of them. September 15, 1944, 11.30 p.m., the point on Peleliu Island. The Japanese night counterattack has failed to take back their critical point from the exhausted and dogged 30 Marines of K Company. Their incredible effort has taken out the horrific enemy gunfire that was shredding their fellow Marines still coming ashore. Now they must hold it to provide precious time for even more Marines to land. Judge Braswell Dean Jr., Private First Class, Automatic Rifleman at Peleliu. I'd always been a church kind of guy, put God, family, and country in that order. But you know, when you're getting ready to kill or be killed, your family and your God and your country may be put on the table. 
You're only thinking about the guy in front of you is the enemy. You're thinking about you and your buddy. You're thinking about killing and trying not to get killed and to help your fellow Marines. At 9 a.m., the Third Fleet is just off Peleliu Island. After 30 hours of relentless, brutal fighting, the expected walkover invasion of Peleliu has turned into a meat grinder. At 10.30 a.m., despite the savage losses on the beachhead, with K Company holding the point, Hundreds of Marines from the 1st Marine Division move off of the beaches and advance towards their main target, the airfield. As Marines close in on the critical airfield, the Japanese unleash a speeding horde of 18 tanks leading infantry to meet the Marines head-on. Walter Doc Davidson. They've had a bunch of tanks. I I think somebody told me there was 18 of them. And they, what they did, they lined them up up there on the airfield and they massed their troops behind them and they was gonna shove us right back in the ocean and they came at us. Well, boy, they couldn't have picked a worse time. Colonel Dick Camp, author of Last Man Standing, the first Marine Regiment on Peleliu. Here they come, this counterattack coming right for us. I'm proud to say that every Marine who could possibly shoot, shot. They just knocked the crap out of these Japanese tanks. Our medium tanks were firing, rockets were firing, machine guns, and just stopped it in its tracks. They couldn't tell how many tanks were in the assault because they blew them to pieces. They just blew everything to pieces out there. The Marines, having stopped the initial thrust of the Japanese to protect their airfield, must now take it and hold it. Just ahead of the Marines sits the Umurbrugal, a dark, forbidding fortress of ridges, including a nightmare the Marines call Bloody Nose Ridge. It is a ghastly jumble of upthrust coral and limestone ridges, box canyons, natural caves, and sheer cliffs. Every inch of it is painstakingly fortified by their enemy. Henry Sledge, son of Eugene Sledgehammer Sledge. His unit started across, and I remember him describing to me the white-hot coral and, and just the terror of being out in the open. To be an enemy fire was a terrifying thing, but to be under heavy shell fire out in the open and, and without the ability to either get below ground or get under cover was terror compounded beyond the imagination. Five days after the attack began, the exhausted, dehydrated Marines secure Peleliu's airfield, paid for in Marine blood. Despite the horrendous casualties, the division commander, Major General William Rupertus, 
refuses the offer of his commanding officer, General Roy Geiger, to bring in Army reinforcements. Peleliu will be a Marine victory not to be shared. General Rupertus, determined to have his Marines secure the island, orders his exhausted men resume attack with maximum efforts in all sectors. But the ridge defenses and nightmare landscape quickly bog the Marines down. On October 15, 1944, news of the bloody attacks makes its way to General Roy Geiger. He is shocked at the horrendous casualties. He immediately overrides Rupertus's initial refusal of reinforcements and rushes in army units. But these units, too, are blunted by the same storms of metal on Bloody Nose Ridge, day after horrid day. The effort to secure the island is again bogged down as death drenches the battlefield. From the diary of Eugene Sledge, to those who entered the meat grinder itself, the war was a netherworld of horror from which escape seemed less and less likely as casualties mounted and the fighting dragged on and on. Time had no meaning. Life had no meaning. The fierce struggle for survival in the abyss of Peleliu had eroded the veneer of civilization and made savages of us all. With the critical airfield in American hands, there remains the bloody job of securing the rest of the island. The horrific task of digging out an adversary buried deep inside a treacherous maze of caves and tunnels is left to the ingenuity of the individual Marines. That goal, and survival itself, depends entirely on their ability to find new ways to kill an enemy protected within a subterranean fortress chiseled into hell. Colonel Dick Camp, author of Last Man Standing, the 1st Marine Regiment on Peleliu. You're attacking into the teeth of the enemy defenses. And you're losing man after man after man. Your unit leaders are gone. Who's left? It's the PFC with guts who says, screw it, I'm going forward. War in the Pacific uh, and on Peleliu was of a primordial nature. I don't think most present-day Americans can even comprehend the level of hatred and anger that you have to have to survive and win a conflict like that. From the diary of Private Eugene Sledge, as I looked at the stains on the coral, I recalled some of the eloquent phrases of politicians and newsmen about how gallant it is for man to shed his blood for his country and to give his life's blood as a sacrifice, and so on and so on. The words seemed ridiculous. Only the flies benefited. I can remember my father talking about how one thing that he feared as much as being maimed physically was to lose his sanity. Came to this visceral decision that they might wound me, they might kill me, they might disfigure me for life, but I'm not 
going to let the Japanese drive me crazy. From the diary of Eugene Sledge. War is brutish, inglorious, and a terrible waste. The only redeeming factors were my comrades' incredible bravery and their devotion to each other. Marine Corps training taught us to kill efficiently and to try to survive. But it also taught us loyalty to each other and love. The esprit de corps sustained us. After months of vicious, non-stop fighting, the battle for Peleliu is far from over, while the relentless push and sacrifice of the young marines and soldiers have cleared large sections of the island. The long, northern edge of Peleliu, thick with deeply dug-in enemy forces, remains a nightmare. To the withering, exhausted men who must dig them out, and the Japanese soldiers unwilling to surrender, there are but two ways off the island. death or victory. By mid-October, the bloodbath on Peleliu has devolved into a cruel marathon of horrors along the island's mountainous northern ridge. Dug in, concentrated groups of Japanese soldiers are determined to hold the island. The exhausted marines and soldiers slugging it out in daily death matches against an enemy sworn to fight to the bitter end must break their enemy's resolve before the island and MacArthur's flank can be secured. Japanese at times would purposely shoot a Marine so as not to kill him, but just to wound him, knowing that four more guys would come out as a stretcher team. The Japanese opened up on stretcher bearers with everything they had. Walter Doc Davidson. They would come out to surrender with a white flag, nothing on but shorts, and they'd come out, surrender, surrender, give up, give up, and they'd run right up to you. They'd pop both arms out, two grenades would fly off one of their armpits and blow both of you up. So all you could do was shoot them when they'd come out like that. You just couldn't trust it. Japanese sniper fire is a constant concern for the war-torn Marines. The defiant Japanese defenders have kept their oath to protect the island to the death. As the battle draws down, only a handful will be taken alive. Colonel Kunio Nakagawa, commander of the division's 2nd Regiment, proclaims, Our sword is broken, and we have run out of spears. He then burns his regimental colors and performs ritual suicide. On November 27th, after 73 days of non-stop fighting, the worn-out Marines and soldiers accomplish their mission. In a campaign originally thought to be a cakewalk, America's sons had endured, adapted, and overcome blistering heat, nightmarish fortifications, and an enemy fighting to the death. Forever a band of brothers. Judge Braswell Dean Jr., Private First Class, Automatic Rifleman at Peleliu. We depended on each other as a brother, and uh, we looked after each other, and we shared a lot of stories together. We were frightened together, but we fought together. Walter Doc Davidson. Oh my God, what did I get into? 
I had to do over again, I'd do the same thing. You get a real bond with them, and I've still got that bond. I've still got it right now. Braswell Dean Jr. One of us got on the ship going back. They said, Marine, did you get bring any, any souvenirs? And one of them said, yes, we brought our AWS back. <laughs> said, that's our souvenir. <laughs> For 73 days, Eugene Sledge wrote about his experiences at Peleliu in the margins of a small Bible he kept at his side. Henry Sledge. Marines were not allowed to keep diaries in World War II. So he had this Bible with him, as most of them did. But this Bible is so significant to people that know the story because... He also kept notes in it and on the pages here. As the years went by on nights after when my brother and I were small kids and we had gone to bed, he would sit up at night by the fireplace and wrote more and more detailed notes as he could remember things. It grew from there to eventually become with the old breed. John Keegan referred to it as the most arresting document of wartime literature. Uh, to come out of World War II. From the diary of Eugene Sledge. Now I can write this story, painful though it is to do so. In writing it, I have fulfilled an obligation I have long left to my comrades in the 1st Marine Division, all of whom suffered so much for our country. None came out unscathed. Many gave their lives, many their health, and some their sanity. All who survived will long remember the horror they would rather forget. But they suffered and they did their duty so a sheltered homeland can enjoy the peace that was purchased at such high cost. We owe those Marines a profound debt of gratitude. This podcast was produced by the American Heroes Channel. Join us again next week for Against the Odds, the untold story of the Battle of Mortain, the story of an outgunned, outnumbered, and surrounded Army National Guard unit in France facing an armored German counterattack during the Battle of Normandy in August of 1944. I'm your host, Shane Bowler. Thank you for listening. <laughs>